CBN, FM, and Arbor. Good afternoon, Ann Arbor. My name is T. Hetzel, uh, and you're listening to The Living Writers Show. And I'm sitting here today um, feeling very lucky uh, with the, the lovely and talented writer, uh, Michael Byers. Hello, Michael. Welcome. Hi, T. I'm feeling very lucky, too, sitting across from you. Also lovely. Also talented. Oh, thank you. Go on, go on. Okay, I will. Oh, wait, this is your show. <laughs> That's right. No, we're here to talk about you. Um, so uh, just as a brief uh, introduction, uh, Michael Byers is, is here in Ann Arbor as an associate professor uh, at the University of Michigan. He's uh, a, a wonderful writer. He's got a collection of short stories that are critically acclaimed, The Coast of Good Intentions, and his novel that came out in 2003, Long for This World. He's currently working on many new projects, and maybe by the end of the hour or the 45 minutes, rather, we'll get to hear a little bit more about um, his current obsessions. Um, he's an award winner, this guy, Michael Byers. Uh, he's, he's got the Whiting Prize under his belt and uh, the Academy of Arts and Lectures Sue Kaufman Prize for First Fiction as well for the short story collection. Um, so we're very lucky to have him here today. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, <laughs> um, so we started off with a little a little number. Yes, um, we did. Can we? Can you tell us a little bit about the the reason for the the song, song choice? Dusty Springfield, great Dust song, perhaps one of the best songs ever sung. Um, I don't know much about music, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But anyway, I do know this song because I happen to love this song, and I think the the first time I came to love this song was when it was in the Dr Pepper commercial. Do you remember this? Do you remember the Dr. Pepper commercial? And yes. it just seemed really like a cool song to know. So, What year was that, would you say? That was 1990 or something, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. You were a youngin'. I, oh, no, nah, not that. Well, <clears throat> so heard this, heard the song, loved it. And then, well, but the reason you played it was, was because that was my karaoke debut. Uh, Dusty Springfield. And where was that? that where did that take place? That was, that was right here, man. And that was just a few, what, months ago when Jeffrey Eugenides was in town. And I bet he was down here, too, talking into maybe even this very hallowed microphone. That's so right. he was a great guy. And so he wanted to go out. And it was after his lecture. And then there was a big dinner. And then we were out. And then he wanted to keep going out. And so somebody... I think this happens, although I usually go home before this happens. Somebody said, let's go do karaoke. So I went, and we all went, and there we were. And this was, it, it's about, what is it called, circus, something like this? That's right, okay. it's the circus. All right, so it's down, what, above the blind pig down yeah, there? Yeah, right by on. the blind pig okay. there, on so, first. <laughs> yeah. So, so we went A little there. ad there right. for the circus <clears throat> Monday nights. Now, now, this was the smokiest room I'd ever been in, including in buildings that have been on fire. Okay, I mean, this was this was a really smoky place. And, and, and so I couldn't, first of all, it affected my throat, which affected my singing, I will, I will say. Well, it was a very throaty 
throaty song. Yeah, Eugenity said it. I sounded what like uh, like William Shatner singing in his version of 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 uh, of um, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which is a, you know one of my favorite singing performances of all time. I don't know if that's around anywhere, but. Um, yeah, so I, I, I tended, I guess, to be more of a spoken word artist on this night up there. But I do, I, I will say for myself, I was not nervous and I was not drunk. So I got up there and I just sung sober and had a darn good time. That's right, children. You can See? do that. You can do it. It's possible. <laughs> and it was, and then I got, I got home and it was so late and I smelled so bad that um, when I walked in the door, uh, I went upstairs, and my wife woke up because of the smell. The cigarette smell. It was so bad. So I'm not allowed to go there your any, wife, anymore. Your wife, the been, poet, Susan. It, Susan Hutton has now disallowed my presence. Unless I shower after, and that's okay. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's a, I yeah. think so. More but it was showers. Fun. Look, I like singing. I you do. were great. I was impressed. See? Thank you. I was impressed. Thank you. I called William Shatner afterwards, and he said... He said, come along. We'll do a thing together. We'll go on the road. So on, for the next book tour, William Shatner will be opening for you, and then you you both will I'm, do... Uh, I'm, I'm ghostwriting his new memoir, which is called Yes, This Is My Hair. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, um, well, let's talk about writing. Is this is your debut performance of karaoke going to be making it into one of your... your are you writing any short stories now, or what? what I am. You... I'm, writing, I'm writing a bunch of different things. Primarily, I'm working on a novel, um... And in the middle of and in, in the process of writing that, one also writes a bunch of other stuff. I'm writing a few short stories, and I have just finished, I think, a novella um, and some nonfiction as well. So I'm kind of um, all over the place, I suppose, at the moment. Is Primarily, it, though, the novel is, is happening. Is that, okay, is that normal for you, then, to have many, multiple things? What is, what's a day in the life of writer Michael Byers? Well, um, Day in the life, I, uh, it, it sort of depends on what the teaching schedule is, because I teach up here at the U of M, and so my days are, are shaped um, kind of by the outside obligations that I have, like a lot of people. Um, but what I try to do is try to get at least a paragraph or a page or so every day, and often I fall fall, uh, fall far short of that. Um, but um, I tell, <laughs> when I'm in the graduate writing workshop, for example, I tell... Um, tell the cohort around the table that it's important at least just to open the file and look at what you're working on every day so that it doesn't become something alien to you so that you can so it doesn't feel like it's some kind of um oh uh some project that has nothing to do with you or that you you had been working on before you you want you want to kind of maintain a continuous um uh, interaction with with what you're working on. So so right. this is what I try to do, and it just depends on how much time I get. On a good day, you know, I can work for eight hours and get a lot done. And uh, on other days, you work for eight minutes. So um, it's kind of what I can get. Right, right. And I have family and kids and and other obligations, and I have to mow the lawn now. <laughs> although I'm thinking of putting, that's spring. Put, yeah, I'm thinking of just putting in a, a great big toupee out there, sort of a grass toupee, so I don't have to cut it anymore. William, actually, Shatner, told me about that. It's all about the hair. Yeah. Yeah, even if it's on your lawn. Mm -hmm. You know you can do that. You can buy a lawn covering. Yeah, you think I'm kidding. No, I believe you. you. I just don't know if all our listeners are aware of the fake lawn. I do. I I, I know about it. There, And also, I kind of like the thing where you paint your concrete green. Have you seen this? This is great, because it's sort of, it's... It's the it's the worst because you think you're fooling people. 
Like if somebody is flying over in a in a Piper Cub, maybe they'll look down on on your lawn and think, "What a nice, what a place for croquet, beautiful green lawn." And then they get to your house and they realize, no, it's just it's a it's a parking lot that you painted green. I think I don't know. I think it's very strange. But 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 I'm thinking about it. And it's green. It's very so green. so. Would you say that's what your <laughs> politics are like? <laughs> they look green from far away. When you get up close, they're just uh, urban and uh, yeah, hard. That's me. That's no. <laughs> don't believe you. Well, um. So, so you you came here, Michael, for your for your MFA. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about. Tell us your story. My story is um, kind of always wrote as a kid, even as a very young kid, was always kind of writing and interested in story, and so on. And had some pretty good teachers in high school who, who at least didn't discourage me. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with my family. And then I went to college and was a creative writing major, which was admittedly not the most strenuous major you could <laughs> undertake, but um, but I worked I worked at it. And then um, after that, uh, after I graduated from college, I uh, took two years off and I did well. I I did Teach for America for two years, so I taught elementary school, taught third grade, and then I taught sixth grade. Where did you do the teaching? That was in rural southern Louisiana. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, and. Quite an experience, and and you moved from Seattle. That's where you grew up I in moved Seattle, from Seattle, Washington. Went to Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio, and then from there went to uh, went to Louisiana for a couple of years. Then uh, took a year off after that, save having saved you know a few dollars teaching. Um, I and thought you were going to say saved many children's lives no, and given saved, them the gift of words. Yeah. I, I was actually I was I was an amazingly bad elementary school teacher. I was really bad, and I kind of knew it at the time. Also, and <laughs> it it uh, it struck me um, as I was kind of about three months in that that this was really not the job for me because it, it required it required me to be it, it, what what an elementary you have to have your soul kind of on the outside of your body mm-hmm. you have to be vulnerable and open and ready and available for everybody all the time in the classroom and then you take it home and and particularly for this population they were you know terribly underserved and in, in need of so much. And man, I just wanted to be writing, and so I was miserable and made their lives miserable. So, I decided that a career as a third grade teacher, I was not going to be Mr. Byers down the hall with the like the AV cart. That was not me. So, um, I kind of bummed around for a year, living off my savings, and then applied to graduate school to and um, uh, went here uh, to get my MFA. That was in '94 to '96. And how'd you get the word on on that? Who? Um, when. Um, uh, when I was applying here, I knew Charlie Baxter was teaching here, and so that was very much a draw, uh, of, of course. And um, I was living at the time in a in my granddad's uh, old um, beach cabin on the coast of Washington, which sounds beautiful, I know. It sounds gorgeous. And my granddad, who was a really paranoid guy, had built it as a bomb shelter, as a fallout shelter. <laughs> so it was not beautiful. Um, it was kind of up on stilts, so it wouldn't get washed away by the by the terrible tides that would follow nuclear, you know, Holocaust. And when you opened the the, the cabinets, there were these jars and cans of like old um, mandarin orange slices and clams and stuff. It was, you know, like. Do you have any pictures of this? Yeah, uh, no, I, I don't. But but it it was as though, you know, the worst thing that he could think of. In in you know and post nuclear fallout situation was like what if you got scurvy, what what if you got scurvy and and you couldn't 
you couldn't walk anymore because you got rickets. And, you know, so he had a lot of vit- he had vitamin C. He was a sad kind of strange guy. But anyway, so I was living there. Carpenter ants were eating the middles of the doors. I was just, you know, it was not beautiful. And then the phone rings. <laughs> the phone rings in this horrible right, right. kind of windswept January uh, landscape. It's almost like Weathering Heights, too, your own version. Yeah, almost. Or... <laughs> <laughs> And and it's Charlie Baxter on the other end of the line. Oh, I know. You're Heathcliff. Um, and he's Charlie. <laughs> and I don't know how that goes together, but but he calls, and there he is, and, and he says, Michael, I want you to come come to Michigan. And I say, yes, of course, of course, I'm going to come. So I came. And, and then I was here for two years, and then um, met my wife, and we went to California to do Stegner Fellowships, and then moved back to Seattle for five years, and then um, kind of got on the job market at that point. And taught at Pitt, and now I'm here. Oh, but and um, going back a little bit, a little bit of rewinding there. So Charlie Baxter was one of one of your big influences yes. as you were um, very much reading and, widely. And, and, and exactly, and and I remember, in fact, very vividly sitting in the kind of um, living room, dining room of, of the house that we rented in 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 Louisiana um, as a as a as I was as I was teaching and reading uh, Charlie's story, Griffin. About um, you know the crazy substitute teacher who comes in and I love that story. It's a beautiful story. And reading that and thinking, boy, that's really what a story should be. And um, you know, feeling it very much as here's the um, here's here's what you get to do if you get to be a writer. You 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 get to you get to create these people and to produce these these mystical half seen understandings. And and this is what I felt I wanted to get to at some point. This is what I felt. Um, was important to write about and to see. Um, and so reading that story in that place at that time was particularly important to me. Also, the story that disappeared, I think, was around at that time, and Saul and Patsy were pregnant, um, mm. was, was out then. Um, and, yeah, Charlie was Charlie was and remains uh, a, a big draw and a big influence. Well... Well, thank you. On, on that on that note, I think we're going to take a break. We'll go to a break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Um, my name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm speaking with Michael Byers.
Hello, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. Today we have Michael Byers with us here in the studio. Uh, Michael, would you mind reading a little bit for us today from your your story collection, The Coast of Good Intentions? Yeah, I'll read from um, the story called Settled on the Cranberry Coast. And this was a story I was working on for a long time. Um, I started it actually in college and couldn't get it right and couldn't get it right and couldn't get it right. And while I was teaching elementary school, um, it was the one story that I worked on for about 18 months, two years. So, so. How, do, how, do you, how do you stick with a story? Like how do you find the fortitude and, and to kind of – it sounds like you have to dig deep to keep believing in the story itself. Like how did you know not to walk away from it? Yeah, I didn't I, – I, I, I think I should have probably. I mean the, the smarter thing to do, the, 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 perhaps the, uh, the more sensible thing to do would have been to say, okay, well, I'm not going to get this one right. Uh, let me go on to the next one. But for whatever reason, um, I was, um, I kept coming back to this to this story and to this material, and it it turned out to be um, important to me in a lot of ways because it was about um, it was about being back in in Washington and around Seattle. And while I was teaching in ele- teaching elementary school in Louisiana for Teach for America, I felt very much displaced from from what I felt then very strongly <clears throat> to be. Um, to be my home territory. And uh, I, I identify then and still do to some extent um, as a kind of Northwest writer, but, but then, back then very much as, a, as somebody who was trying to learn how to write a story, I was, I was very much trying to get at something about my native place. And so I was writing about it a lot, and this story was, was quite firmly set there. And I think that's probably what drew me back to it. And it takes place in and around... Uh, my granddad's cabin um, as well. So um, it had that kind of extra resonance um, to me even then. And the, my granddad's cabin was a place that we went um, sort of on cheapo family vacations, right? Because that was what we could do. Yep. So settle on the Cranberry Coast. And this is, this is the first story in, in this book. Um, and I'll just read the first um, paragraph here. This I know. Our lives in these towns are slowly improving. When Rosie grew up in the old reservation houses, the roads were dirt and the crab factory still wheezed along, ugly and reeking. And in early summer, the factory stayed open all night. It was the only work you could get. And the damp, dirty smell of the crab, cooking in its steel vats, blew off the ocean, all the way to Aberdeen, even farther for all I knew. I remember driving home from movies in high school, the windows open, the sweet pulp mill smell of Aberdeen, tinged with that distant, damp cardboard of Toklan's cooking crab. But when the harvest failed 15 years ago, the state jumped in with some money, and almost at once, Toklan plumped with antique stores and curiosity shops, and the old clapboard hotel became a registered landmark and got a profile in Sunset. The Shoalwaters did all right, too. Three years ago, they sold their fishing rights to the Willapa and voted to put the money into the market, mostly into technology stocks. A lot of them have managed to live off the dividends, and now they buy fishing licenses like the rest of us. Their trawlers are easily the nicest around. You'll notice them moored under the bridge in Aberdeen, the big, sleek, sleek, powerful monsters with aluminum hulls, blue-striped, the new nets, new radar. Um, So I was writing there from the point of view of a character who had lived there all his life um, and who had occupied that territory in a way that I hadn't, of course, in any way, um, that particular place. It's about two hours from Seattle. um, But who had occupied a place that felt important to me. Um, And so trying to get at the heart of this character and to have to see um, a certain set of changes in uh, in the landscape and in the economy and in kind of the social setup of that place through his eyes um, seemed like a way to get into that place um, through a person. And so that's finally where the story came together for me when I kind of got that guy. And once I got that guy, the, the rest of the story 
um, more or less fell into place. I'm glad you didn't give up on him. Yeah, well, so am I. Um, and you know, he he was modeled off off a, off off a a person I knew, a man I knew, and the story um, itself was modeled off a couple people that I knew. Um, and while um, you know, right, one one kind of hesitates to admit that as a writer to say, well, you know, I knew these people, I kind of wanted to write about them because it feels as though you're shortchanging uh, whatever it is, the process of invention or the the kind of creative. Um, again, mystery that, that you want to feel lives at the heart of whatever process you're engaged in. Um, I do that a lot, and I write about people I know a lot in, in versions that they may or may not actually recognize. And, and as, I've, um, as I've gone on writing, I've, I've been a little um, uh, more, let's say, um, uh, open about who I'm writing about and how and why and so what what I find as I as I continue to write as I build more stories and novels is that um, the, uh, the 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 truths of whatever matters I'm trying to get at are 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 seem to be um, truths that I already um, feel like I, I I don't quite know um, uh, but that but that I know I, I I know how people have reacted around them say let's say so that so that um, if I want to write a story about somebody that I that um, that I know and who is who is uh, who's an actual living person, uh, <laughs> a living non-writer, let's say, um, uh, that that I'm feeling freer in taking on those people and those stories, um, and uh, for what it's worth, uh, that that process has felt um, at once freeing and also kind of terrifying because you're 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 sort of letting the screens down you're saying well you know what i'm i I am in fact writing a little bit more from life now and and i'm not going to make any bones about that you know the the truth is of course that one always does one always has and i always have um, written about people that i've known i've just sort of hidden it from myself or or from them um, Mm. a little more actively well that makes me think of um a couple of things um one of them is this um you're saying that your these truths you sort of half know them in a way and you're writing to understand them through telling the stories. Does that mean that you feel as though you are understanding them after the stories in place? Um, Mm -hmm. Or or is it something that is still searching and other people would be able to see it more clearly in the story? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, the, you can't write a story that you already know because there's no point in writing it, of course. Um, what mm. you're trying to do is find, I suppose, what you don't know about what you think you know, maybe, uh, if that makes any sense. Makes so, sense. So, so you, 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 you've got things in front of you. You have people in front of you. And maybe what you don't know is why things have happened or you maybe don't even know what you think about them. Um, mm-hmm. Don't even know about, don't even know why uh, certain things have continued to obsess you or upset you or... Um, please you in ways that that seem strange, and um, you know you can write about, uh, or I, I've I've been finding myself writing um, s- somewhat more about um, incidents from my childhood and from being uh, uh, much younger. And when I was in my twenties, let's say, I was writing about people who were in their forties and fifties and sixties, and people would ask me, "Well, why are you writing about these characters?" I would I would not admit to them that in fact I was writing about people that I knew. Um, but and and it seemed easier to kind of fake it, perhaps, and to say, "Well, I'm just making them up." <laughs> and uh, you know, a, a, in those cases too, I was I was I was also fighting my way towards a certain understanding. But but now it feels like a, a much more 
um, that I know my own processes better and that I know what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to accomplish as I'm, as I'm get going about it. And I don't know where I'm going often, you know, in, in, when you're actually sitting down there behind the keyboard, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I think you shouldn't mostly. And at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm also sitting there in the classroom and, and teaching and, or trying to, trying to, <coughs> to, uh, to lead other people through their, either through their own fiction or through published fiction. Um, and so uh, uh, there's, there is a kind of double think that you have to engage in, which is to say that, that yes, you're reading somebody else's fiction. You can really see w where it's going and what it's, what it's, um, why it's built the way it's built and, and what it's missing and what are the marvelous things it does. And you can really see that from the outside. And yet when you go to your own work, you, you do have to preserve a certain ignorance, um, a, a certain um, willed or um, accepting... Um, non-seeing, uh, and not to try to overthink, and not to try to think your way through the story, but to allow the story to a certain degree, degree to come to you. To be. Yeah, to, to, to take shape in front of you, or through your fingers rather than, than through your brain somehow. Um, you don't want you, so you're not for strong-arming. Exactly. Yeah, you don't, you, you, because that does not, that produces um, non-fiction. Um, and that and that's that's quite a useful tool in producing nonfiction. That is to say, I think I know what I want to say, and here's how I'm going to say it. And I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And that's my, why nonfiction for me is is quite a bit easier to write, and and I can do that um, uh, uh, without much trouble. Mm -hmm. um, but fiction for me takes takes still takes um, effort, and I, I still have those moments where I'm sitting there staring at the floorboards and thinking, what is happening what is going on what is going you know and 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 those are scary moments but you're saying absolutely necessary they're scary they're, but they're also productive because mm. they are those moments when i think your brain is you know it's pearl diving there it's, you're you're down there in and somebody in, in there is holding his breath and is getting the treasure from the bottom and is going to come up eventually but you, you know you, right right you, deep you, interior subconscious stories yeah, at work and and you know, you. I find myself thinking, wow, this is, <laughs> this is what I've staked it all on, right? I'm going to be a writer and a teacher, and I, you know, you stake it all on the ability to, um, to continue this process, right? And to and to continue to have access to this kind of, um, well, complicated, uh, I mean, necessarily unreliable and imperfect um, uh, act. That, that you engage in to try to write a decent story. You have to go all the way down there, and you, you know, if if you're if you're guiding it, if you're controlling it, if you're trying to control it, it 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 simply doesn't work as well. Um, and so to um, to it, it 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 feels risky as it should. I think it feels risky to 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 rely on that so much. Um, and I wish you know I find myself wishing. Um, that there were easier ways to do it. When I was writing the first novel, Long for This World, um, I found myself really wishing that I could join the army or something, <laughs> or like be a cop. Like I, 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 I just want to go somewhere and do. I want somebody to tell me what to do. Um, please, I, I, I need to understand. You know, I, 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 I want to come into work in the morning. I want, I want to sit down and do my work and then go and know that well, that was okay. That was fine. Right. Um, right. Or, uh, you know, you drive the. Drive the cop car around, and, and and you do what you have to do. Well, well, I'm glad that you're you're not a cop, but I, I think you should watch The Wire. Oh, you are watching I The love Wire. The Wire. Yes, The Wire is really something the else, isn't amazing. it? Well, well, on that note, um, we're gonna go to a little break, and um, and then we'll be back with Michael Byers to to hear more.
You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is T. Hetzel, and um, we're here with a living writer's show with a living writer, Michael Byers. Um, and, and we were just talking a little bit about how Michael's fiction is, um, he seems to be, uh, well, you, <laughs> you're sitting here, I here suppose I, I could right not talk about you in the third person. <laughs> okay. um, I do it myself all the time. Michael, um, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> Signs of he madness. Looks, he he looks great uneasy, writer. <laughs> he said to himself in the mirror. <laughs> Twitching his foot. Um, okay, well, let's see. So we've got, uh, we've been talking about your, your fiction and how um, you used to tell people that um, you weren't writing writing about them necessarily. But I used to be a liar. Now, but now you're coming so clean. <laughs> yes, I'm admitting it. Um, and, and you said you're opening up to sort of uh, being okay with people knowing that you're writing more from from life. And part of this has to do, too, with, with what I'm doing in nonfiction recently, which is, which is explicitly writing about people that I knew um, or know. Um, and getting, I, I think, a little deeper into material about my family and so on and so forth. Um, and um, when last uh, spring I was, I was asked to write a thing for the Washington Post Sunday um, magazine um, – and it was about it was supposed to be about summer and uh, a memoir piece, which meant that it had to be true. And I, and I so I asked my editor, what do you mean true? What do you mean by true? And he said, well, I mean, I mean, true. Like it has to actually be factual. And I, I thought, oh, well, can I do? Uh, yeah, OK, I, I could do that. And the experience for me was was actually very um, freeing um, because one didn't have to invent. One could simply relate what had happened. Um, there's an art, of course, to it. Uh, but but the the uh, the kind of subconscious diving that one has to do for fiction was was not as necessary, or I didn't think it was. Um, so I got to write about um, a summer that I spent in Alaska on a fishing barge, and how um, how it was important to me to have gone there because I thought I was looking for material. That is, I, I thought as a young writer, I was 19, I was in college. I thought, okay, I'm going to find something to write about. Um, and my uncles had got me this job. Um, 
my uncles who were commercial fishermen had got me this job on the on the fishing boat and i was i was a very bad candidate i was i was really small i had a huge pile of hair i had all this all these typewriters i kept journals and stuff um but what i, I was really happy to be going up there because i got to um i got to see all this i i thought the point was i was going to get to go see all these all these things happen um and it, that was, in fact, something that you know I, I did get. I, I saw uh, all kinds of amazing things, um, the sights of Alaska and the the kind of um, chaos of working on a fishing barge and just the beautiful, um, terrible poetry of of the fishing industry. And it seems um, like there's like people have hard lives there and like are doing hard work, and so maybe that seems to make it more real in a sense for a young writer. Absolutely, your stories are more real because your life is harder. Yeah. And and I wrote so I I, I kind of wrote uh, about that intersection that as I was I was I was going up there with a the sensibility and I was hoping to come back with material, and by combining the two I thought well maybe this would maybe this would lead me to be a, a better writer. What I what I eventually discovered was that well what I think I I, I found and part of it was I I found by actually writing this essay about going up there what I found was that in fact the material that I left behind in Seattle my family and its difficulties and my you know the the kind of pained interactions that one naturally has with your family whoever they are um were actually the basis of 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 most of the material that I would want to write about. And having written this last summer, spring, last spring, um, came out last summer, uh, really allowed me to, to say, well, you know what, this is, this is where I'm going to go. This is what I, this, these, these people and this material, this set of facts, um, turns out to be, uh, really, really the basis of, of who I am as a writer and I guess sort of also as a person, um, and so um, writing this nonfiction allowed me to get closer, I think, to the true sources of my fiction and myself as a writer. And it also allowed me to say, well, there's all kinds of cool stuff that I like that I want to write about. So I also, <laughs> um, I, I just finished, I just had a, had a piece uh, in the in, in Spirit magazine. And if you don't know it, you may, you, you probably do know it. Is it available on newsstands? No, it, it, it's no longer available. It's available in the pouch, in the seat back of, in front of you. Uh, and it's the Southwest <laughs> Airlines in-flight magazine. Thank you very much. Um, that is, that yeah. is, I'm clapping. This is a captive audience. This is exactly what you want as a writer. You want you want people who are either drunk, or desperate for something to read, or or the want not yeah, or want <laughs> yes, always good, or want desperately not to talk to their neighbor. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do the crossword, which somebody else has filled out wrongly in ink. And then I'm going to go through the Sky Mall because I might want that little scuba diving thing, which kind of propels you along. Or I might want the the, the, the inflatable um, wading pool, which looks like an octopus. Might want that. And then I'm going to read all the other stuff in the, in the magazine. And so I was, I was me. And so I wrote about the old radio show, one of my great loves, my, the old radio TV uh, radio drama, uh, Dragnet. Mm. You know, Dragnet, mm. Dragnet. Jack Webb. Now, mm. see, I've never seen the TV show. I understand it's kind of exactly the same as the radio show. But I grew up. Well, one of the things that that I that that I loved about, um, uh, dra well, I've always loved old radio and and have been a fan of radio forever. And when I was, and I think this stems from when I was ten, <laughs> I got for a birthday present. I got oh yeah, I got a radio. Now Aww. I know. It seems kind of sad. And now you're on the radio. Now here I am. And so I, I used to listen. I live in Seattle, right? So West Coast time, Pacific time. I used to listen to Larry King back in the day 
when dude did his five hours, five hours, every night. This was before his heart attack. Right? And, and you could hear him eating just cheese on the radio. How did you know it was cheese? Like, you could, you could, you could just hear, hear the affected, cheese. It, it affected it. He was the eating phlegm. the cheese. Yeah, and, and peanuts and whiskey. All, and probably this may be libelous. I don't know. <laughs> um, Larry, Did I'm I, kidding. That's right. This was a joke. This is I couldn't radio hear, free Ann Arbor. I could I obviously couldn't see anything, Larry, because you were on the radio. But anyway, he did five hours a night. It was two hours of guest. The first hour was just him and the guest and Larry talking, and then the second hour was call in, and then three hours of open phones. Man, this was an amazing performance. Three hours of open, open phones, and he would have regulars. And I think, you know, this, I was 10, so I, don't, I didn't know anything at all. But you would hear the guy, like the guy from Paramus, New Jersey, call in, and he was the numbers man. Now, the numbers man, man. So he would, he would call in, and he would, he would go through, he was insane, and he would read the baseball scores from the night before and tell you why they meant that Jesus was X and that, say, President <laughs> Carter was, you know, or whatever, or that, or that, or that Ronald Reagan was going to do such and such and so and so, and that proved it. The birth of a fiction writer. Well, yeah, exactly. And Larry, Larry was the skeptic. He, mm. You know, he, he wasn't buying it. Mm. No way. He was, well, well, why don't you tell me what the scores are, why don't you tell me what the scores are going to be tonight? Tell me what the scores are going to be. But that was a good impression. Yeah, the numbers man would not. Fine. He simply he 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 refused. He didn't answer the question. He just went on. He was crazy. So there's the numbers man. I love the numbers man. And then there were all these stories that that Larry would tell. And because you know you couldn't like download them or anything, you had to wait for Larry to tell them. And he wouldn't tell them every night or even every week. It would be like every few months he would tell the Gil Mapo story. Oh, the same story. Yeah, he would tell a story from his childhood about you know what he'd done and who Gil Mapo was and. And they would be almost exactly the same every time, but not quite, because he would actually be literally telling them on, on the air. And one, you know, anticipated, waited. You, you, you kind of knew Larry's real name, which I now forget, but it was, you know. That's not it, it his wasn't, real name. No, it wasn't Larry King. It was, you know, something much less impressive. <laughs> his first name was Larry. Um and listening to him out on the way, so I, I would listen, and, and it would get to be one in the morning and two in the morning. I'm, I know, I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old, and I'm listening to this, and this is my radio. The, you know, I didn't do music. Music was never the thing. I, I don't know. I, Your parents didn't make you go to sleep? Well, they did, but, you know, then then there's the whole th Now, this is another story. <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't know, because I was way up in my room, and nobody could hear me or find me. Your anything. attic room? My Your attic, garret? My attic room. That's right, where I was with the cats. And with Larry King, and that was just that was that was us. We were That's the way it was. That was it. And um, so I, I listened to Larry King instead of listening to music until I got into high school, and I thought, oh wait a second, people are talking about music. That's amazing. I don't know what music is. I you know because I, I for Did whatever reason it just I I I missed it. It hadn't occurred to you. I guess so. I just I missed it. I missed. I, 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 whatever cue there was to here's the cool station to listen to, and I just I didn't get the memo. So maybe your parents didn't listen to music either, like any. Yeah, you know they listened to talk radio sometimes, but hmm. it was more like NPR. You know, it wasn't the it wasn't the it wasn't Larry King. It wasn't the hardcore stuff that you were into. Yeah, no, <laughs> so. So, but in high school, I, I I got turned on to KVI 570, which is now one of these horrible right wing radio stations. Yeah, it got taken over. Maybe it isn't anymore. I don't know. But it was, 
most recently that I know of, that was its most recent incarnation. But back in the day, it was, um, <laughs> it was oldies. But I didn't, I didn't really know they were oldies. So, this is where Dusty Springfield comes from. I knew I'd heard that song before somewhere. I know, and to me, it was brand new music, mm. right? And to to me, to me, listening listening to Motown and the Beach Boys in Seattle in 1984, that was you know somehow I made a connection with this music. I don't know, and so I would I would bring people, people. I would try to bring. You know, like if I ever had friends over, let alone a girlfriend, goodness gracious, I would, you know, I'd, I'd put on some music and I'd say, listen to this. And I'd put on, you know, uh, good vibrations, not not meaning vibrations, just meaning listen to Brian Wilson. Like, isn't this, or I'd put on Smokey, I had Smokey Robinson, I had that two, di, two, C, two CDs, please. I had the two record thing mm. and um, all the early, and Martha Reeves and all that old stuff. And so that's when I, so you that was a... my karaoke. That was really where I was karaokeing there in my room with uh, uh, Earl Grey the cat and and looking out on, on my yard. Um, that was my beginning as a singer. That's wonderful. And that's where Actually. I started. And 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 uh, but Larry Larry King was my first kind of and, storyteller. And, and you had a radio who... show too, though, probably because of Larry King. You Larry went on King. the radio. Well, my friend Kevin Weeks and I we started uh, we started a little company, and for a while we wanted to do um, TV, and then we thought, well, maybe that's not quite our bag. And so we went over to uh, the college radio station there. This is in high school now um, in Seattle, KCMU. I think it's now defunct. And well, we had we had little KEXP. Oh, okay. So wait, it lives right. on. It lives on without you, but hard to believe. How does it? And we we you know we do little skits, a little skit show. And so we had my one I I I remember, um, a non sequitur man was well, this is this is before the comic strip non sequitur, but but this was non sequitur man. So and he was a he was a superhero. And so somebody would say help help non sequitur man. I'm caught in the well. And the secretary man would say, I'm going to get a parking ticket. And that was that was sort of non-secretary man. That's what he would do. The, and it was that funny then, too. That's riveting, though. Yeah, it no, really is. It is. And we, <laughs> so, so this is how this is this is the other way I spent my my early days of high school is writing radio skits. And I guess, you know, maybe if I were to try to push it, I would say, well, I was, I was, that was dialogue, it was voice and stuff. And, oh, I don't even, that's, I um, think that that's just, you're maybe, not even pushing it. I maybe just think so. that's, I think, yeah. I think maybe so. It, it was, it was voice. And, and, and I think actually, you know, if I, if I, if I'm honest about it, I would say that, yeah, listening to, listening to those guys, listening to the numbers man and, um, all the other people from around the country call into Larry King and tell their stories and make their claims and talk talk you know out of the ins- insane selfness that they all had to call a national radio show and say Larry I got to tell you this um amplified or worked with something in my nature which was al- already kind of a writer um and suggested that there are big stories out there and there are stories that everybody has um and it I suppose what one does as a writer is learns to find your own material, um, and and I feel as though I'm I'm using those skills that that you get early, and and you make your way back eventually. I think to the material that you started with. Michael Byers, 
You've been wonderful. Will you come back perhaps another time? Thank you, Dee. I will, if only if I'm still living. <laughs> well, then you'd qualify, surely, for the Living Writers Show. Thank you, Michael. Um, this is T. Hetzel saying uh, see you, or, well, see you next Wednesday, same time. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, T.
Live from Production Studio A in downtown Ann Arbor, you're listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN-FM. And hello and welcome everybody to a five minutes early edition of the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Morris Fabry. I'll be your host on today's show. On the other side of the glass, I have with me Chris Pickler, Jeff Chan, and Austin Falco. First things first, fellas, what do you guys think of the new intro? That's the first time I've heard it. I let it play. I expected to hear some clips on it. It seems like something Jeremy kind of cobbled together, but... I personally dug the instrumental. You uh, you played that for a real long time, though. Mm-hmm. You not played bad. that a real long time. I was a fan. It's it's a nice, especially during the off season when not a whole ton of sports are going on. It's a nice low key intro there. Don't need to get necessarily fired up for. I don't know. For sure, you know my favorite thing about it is that it if I let it play, it would go for a full minute and a half, so it'd be good for filling time. Wow. Uh. All right, so we're going to start talking about sports and stuff as I've forgotten to start recording the episode. So our recording of the episode will start in the middle of a sentence. Chris, we're going to you first because you have somewhere to be in an hour. You're going to go down to Chrysler as yes. the Michigan women's basketball team takes on the Northwestern Wildcats. Yes, they do. Uh, tell us where we can listen to this game, what to watch for, uh, well, I guess listen for, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us about the team. Well, guys, you know it's going to be nwcbnsports.org. It'll be me, Dalton Pataki, and Emily Harrard uh, on the call. It's going to be really exciting. I'll be here till the end. I'll be doing the second half, Dalton first, and Emily the whole game. Uh, Northwestern, probably the best team they've played at home this year. Uh, they're 15-4. and four. We're 16, uh, Michigan 16-5. and five. Uh, what to watch for is what to watch for every every game is Caitlin Flaherty. She's one of the best women's basketball players that's ever played here in Ann Arbor, uh, she's going to take at least 15 to 20 shots, uh, and it's just going to depend on how she shoots the ball to decide this game. All right, good to hear. You can hear that on 88.3. No, not on radio. On the radio. You no, can hear it on our YouTube no. channel at WCBN Sports. Uh, you know, it, you can simulcast it with whatever you're listening to on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and yeah. I have no doubt that they will merge seamlessly because, uh, because we're just that good. Yes. Uh, moving on. Uh, big news in the sports broadcasting world today as Brent Musburger has decided to hang up the vocal cords. Calling it quits at age 77, Musburger spent most of his time uh, calling football games for ABC and ESPN. Toward the twilight stages of his career, he was pushed over to the SEC network. But I'd say that he was uh, universally, pretty universally admired for his ability to call the game with uh, the same enthusiasm that we all felt watching it. Uh, and in reaction to Musburger hanging it up, as as well as Vern Lundquist calling it a career uh, earlier on this year, uh, it was a popular thing on Twitter today for people to list their Mount Rushmores of famous broadcasters. So uh, I figured we'd go around the table, per se, as, as much as we can call our Group A table right now. And and give our respective Mount Rushmores of broadcasting. So uh, I guess I should start because okay. I'm currently talking, and that's how sentence flows work. 
Uh, first on my Mount Rushmore would be Kevin Harlan. Uh, I think that he is criminally underrated in the broadcasting community. I think his enthusiasm for the game, like like Musburger, is is something to be admired. And you know, he, he's the guy who called that, who said that someone sucked the gravity out of the building with a dunk. And I think, I think he called LeBron James with no regard for human life. That was another one of his. Uh, He's got a great voice for the gig, and uh, he's also an excellent radio caller, too. Also on my Mount Rushmore would be Mike Tirico. Uh, uh, everybody knows who he is by this point. He got uh, taken by NBC via a coup, uh, but he's also a guy who just brings excitement to every game that he calls. Al Michaels is up there, too. Uh, I think he's as professional as they come, and I like that he at least acknowledges the influence of, of gambling in his broadcast as well, something that the the fans will all love to hear. Uh, and finally, I think it'll I'd have to give my fourth spot to Marv Albert, uh, just because he's had so many iconic calls of, of NBA Finals, especially in recent years, and I, I think he does a great job. So who, who's on your guys' Mount Rushmore's? They don't have to be the best broadcasters. They can be personal favorites of yours, and it doesn't have to be limited or uh, you know a minimum of four. Uh, but now is the time. We'll start with you, Chris. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start with the easy one that's got to be on one of your two guys' uh, Dickie V. I love Dickie V. Oh, really? He's great. Oh, he's awesome. He's he's getting old. He's he's pretty out of it, but I just think he's so fun. He makes boring games fun. I, clearly, you, dis, you disagree. Based I do on... disagree. I think he's kind of dumb. I mean... Okay, can we get two more opinions here? Am I, is, am I really the only one? <laughs> I, I don't, think I think yeah, Dick I Vitale is a controversial opinion for right, Mount Rushmore. I, 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 Dick Vitale is definitely a lover. You either love it or you hate it. There's really not an in-between there. So, I, Although I have to say, I, it depends on the game. depends on the day. If my team's playing, I think I'd prefer someone like Jay Billis on the call. Provides a little more analysis. Okay. But if I'm just watching some random game that yeah, I really exactly. don't care about... interesting. Dicky V will get me into that game. Yeah, it, it, make, it makes it matter. Uh, number two, Ernie Harwell. You're from the you're from the area. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with him, but I I have heard him. Uh, and the last two are just straight bias picks. George Blaha. I'm sure that's gonna get an eye roll from. Mo- there it is. There's yeah, the yeah, eye roll on that. I love George Blaha. He's been there for like 90 years. Uh, he's great. Uh, and my fourth guy would probably be Dan Dickerson. I just have one ticket. Yeah, no, he's Dan, great. Dick, Dan Dickerson he's great. is, I think, a great radio guy. George Blaha, he's iconic. 